Morning. Let's go ahead and open up our Bibles to Luke chapter 2. Last week, our sermon was a promise given, and today we're going to be talking about a promise kept. I want to draw your attentions first to verses 1 through 7. And it came to pass in those days that there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. And this taxing was first made when Cyrenius was governor of Syria. And all went to be taxed, every one into his own city. And Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth into Judea unto the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because it was the he was of the house and lineage of David. To be taxed with Mary, his espoused wife, being great with child. And so it was, that while they were there, the days were accomplished that she should be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloth and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the end. From the beginning of time, as man fell because of his rebellion against God's command, one, one, one command, God had made a plan. But in the process of God fulfilling that plan, man consented, cons- continued to descend into darkness and into sin and rebellion against God's law. In Romans 7, Paul says that the law is good. And what he means is that if man could live by it, it's the way that man should live. But because of man's fallen nature, man doesn't have the capacity to live by it. But it would be good if he did. But man continued and continues still to rebel against God's law. And when man is in rebellion against God, he's in rebellion with all those things also that are around him. The people in his own family, countries, war and fight because of man's war against God. The Bible says that man is at enmity with God because of his sin and rebellion. But it's against God's law that he is really fighting. And thus, because he's fighting against God and his law, he is at war with himself and with those around him. One only needs to look at the world today, and really at any time in history, but more so today, to see the truth of that. Our text points out And it came to pass in those days. Because those days were significant. In fact, in those days, the Roman Empire was actually still being built. Originally, Rome had been ruled by several generals. Eventually, all of its power and might would eventually rest upon one man. And at this particular time, 
that one man would be Gaius Octavius. He had taken the name of Caesar for himself from his uncle and the name Augustus was bestowed upon him by the Roman Senate when he became emperor. So, as the rule of Rome became consolidated on one man, it was the Senate who had determined to give him a title. History tells us that the first title that they decided to give to Octavius was King of Rome. But Octavius rejected that title. It wasn't majestic enough for him. Then we read in history that someone in the Senate had suggested that he take the title of dictator of Rome. That wasn't prestigious enough either. So he didn't like it. So finally, they settled upon the title of Augustus which has its roots in Roman mythology pertaining to the gods. That he liked. He liked that one. So they called his name Caesar Augustus. And you need to realize at this time in history, as the scripture says, in those days, Caesar Augustus was literally the most powerful man on the face of the known world. Thus Luke said, and it came to pass in those days, that there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. And every man went to be taxed. He was emphasizing the enormous power that Caesar Augustus had over the entire known world. Consider the power of one man to make a decree and literally have everyone in the world obey it unquestionably. When Augustus decreed something to be done, it was done. It just was done. There was no one to whom you could gripe or complain. You couldn't appeal it. It was done. No one would dare disobey Caesar Augustus. The whole world must bow to his decree. Because Rome had literally bludgeoned the rest of the world, the known world at that time, into subjection. Now, in Roman mythology, in the worship of their gods, there was one god of war whose name was Janus. And whenever the Roman army was assembled in the fields to battle, the temple gates of Janus were always allowed to stay open. In order for the people to go in and to pray for victory for the Roman army, but as Luke writes, during those days, the gates had been closed. And they were closed for a reason. They were closed because 16 years had passed. And while Caesar Augustus sat on the throne in Rome, peace 
had reigned on the known world. Some people would say, well, how fitting that Christ was born at a time of peace. But the peace that Caesar Augustus brought to the world was not the kind of peace that anyone would want. It was a peace that had been achieved by massive bloodshed because Rome literally ruled the world and had beaten every nation in the known world into subjection. It was said of that time that no man dared say that his life was his own because every man was a slave to Rome and in turn was in actuality a slave to Caesar Augustus, which is why I've always found it interesting that the Pharisees later on when Jesus would be in his ministry would talk about being slaves to sin. And they said, we've never been a slave to any man. While at that time, they were literally slaves to the, to the nation of Rome and really to Caesar Augustus personally. Now, within the Roman providence, far from the Roman capital, there was a little city called Nazareth. tiny little town, which most people had never even heard of. And there lived this young couple, both of whom were of the house of David. So when Caesar Augustus had decreed that all the world should be taxed and counted, they had to submit to his order. Thus, during this census and taxing, which is what it was. Everyone had to return to their ancestral town of origin. And for this young couple, it happened to be the city of Bethlehem, the house of bread. Of course, you know, the couple was Joseph and his espoused wife, Mary, who at that time was great with child, nigh unto ready to be delivered. But regardless of her immediate condition, they were now being forced by decree to make a long, arduous journey by any means possible. The transportation of that day, more than likely for this young couple, was probably that of a donkey, or at worst, they walked all the way. The journey from Nazareth to Bethlehem is anywhere from 70 to 80 miles, depending upon which way you walk. Well, that's a long journey. Today, we think of 70 or 80 miles. Well, that's not too bad. That's a quick drive. Yes, it is. Try walking it. Try walking it. When you're pregnant, not so easy, arduous. It came to pass that Joseph 
went up out of the city of Nazareth there in Galilee to Bethlehem because he was of the house and the lineage of David in order to participate in the census and taxing with his espoused wife Mary being great with child. While they were there, we're told in our text that the time was accomplished that she should be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son wrapped him in swaddling cloth. Some of your Bibles might say clothes. In the Greek, it means cloth. Which are really just strips that have been torn. Rags, really. Just torn rags. And laid him in a manger, for there was no room for them in the inn. Now the question has been asked, and I would ask you the same question. If you were God, where would you have your son to be born? And in what condition? I think it's quite interesting that when God came to the earth in the form of man, there was no room for him in the end. It's been, point, been pointed out many times by many other Bible teachers that this is certainly a precursor of Jesus' entire life. For even to this day, there are those who refuse to make room for him. Oh, they have time and places to go and things to do, but not for him. There's no place for him. It does seem that he is still consigned to a position outside of the general society. But there is something much more important in this narrative than what's on the surface. If we scripturally go back in time, it's easy to see what the greater point is using a prophetic perspective. You see, before Joseph and Mary ever endured their trek from Nazareth to Bethlehem at this most critical point in her pregnancy, it was 700 years earlier the prophet Micah prophesied, and here's what he said, Micah 5.2. But thou, Bethlehem Ephratah, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall come he forth unto me, that is to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth have been from old, from everlasting. So the prophet predicted that Bethlehem would be the birthplace of the Messiah. Therefore, when we read in the text that it came to pass in those days that there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed, and Joseph and Mary had to journey to Bethlehem in order to fulfill that commandment. It's easy to see it was because the word of God had decreed at first that it would happen. The Messiah must be born in Bethlehem. Thus, when you look back and you see Gaius Octavius, who at that time and in those days had been elevated to Caesar Augustus, nigh unto Godhood, he was looked at. The most powerful man in the world 
and the fact that he had given a decree that the whole world bowed down to, that they should travel back to their ancestral home and be sensed and taxed. It's important that we realize that it really wasn't Augustus' word that they were obeying. It was, in actuality, the word of God. Because prophetically, God had declared it through Micah 700 years prior. Long before that little tiny man sitting in Rome had ever uttered a word. Augustus was merely a puppet in the hand of God. Though he thought he had gained what he desired, to be ruler of the world, in reality, a baby, a tiny child, was about to be born in the city of Bethlehem who would, in fact, ultimately, Rule the nations, as we're told in Revelation, with a rod of iron. He would be born the ruler of the world. So by taking a prophetic view, it's easy to see how God, working through the circumstances and the person of Caesar Augustus, brought about the fulfillment of the prophecy by directing Mary and Joseph to leave Nazareth and to go down to Bethlehem in order that his son might be brought into the world. Now, when you think about it, though it was declared 700 years prior, the window of opportunity for that prophecy to be fulfilled was really a handful of days. Had Mary given birth, because a lot of times traumatic circumstances will expedite a birth, as women know, I'm telling the truth. What if she'd have given birth between Nazareth and Bethlehem? Well, if that had been the case, then Jesus would not have been the Messiah. What if she'd have given birth before she left Nazareth? Jesus would not have been the Messiah. Had she given birth any other place other than Bethlehem, Jesus would not and could not have been the Messiah because God had declared it 700 years prior through the prophet Micah that the prophet, the king and priest, the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. After they came to Bethlehem, the time was fulfilled, it says that she should be delivered, and she brought forth her firstborn son, wrapped him in swaddling cloth, and laid him in a manger, for there was no room for them in the inn. Keep it in mind how young this lady was. We're talking about a young woman who is 16 and a half to 17 years old, giving birth for the first time. The ladies who have had children, you know what that's like. You know how frightening that first time can be. Put yourself in that position. Giving birth for the first time with no one there but your husband. Normally there would have been midwives. There would have been other women there to to help and to assist, but not this night. 
She was giving birth in a place where animals were kept. God was at this moment in this time making good on his promise that he would come and would save men from their sins. And he was doing it through this young lady. So on this night, the first miracle of Christmas was that God himself, in the form of man, entered into the fray and would change the course of man's eternal history. This night is so significant that mankind even dates his calendars by it. So often we forget how significant the night of Christmas was. Though there's been many men born into the world who have no doubt left their mark, none like Jesus. We don't date our calendars by the time of their birth and of their, their, their death. and those, We don't do that for anyone else but Jesus Christ. Thus we say B.C., before Christ, and A.D., the time of our Lord or after his birth. His birth changed everything. Very significant. There would be other miracles, though, that night. So Luke goes on. If you look in verse 8, there in chapter 2, he says, and there were in the same country shepherds abiding in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. Now, just as a side note, maybe you already know this, maybe you don't. The fact that it says that these shepherds were in the field by night is an obvious indicator that Jesus was not born on December 25th. Because even in Israel, in December, it is cold, and sometimes the snow blows, and they would not have been in the field at that time. In fact, many Messianic rabbis believe that Jesus' birth was more likely at the beginning of Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. How fitting it would be for the one who made atonement to be born on the Day of Atonement. So maybe sometime between September or October. But irrelevant. Jesus' whose name means Jehovah is salvation was born in Bethlehem. The house of bread is what that means in Hebrew. And that's fitting, isn't it? For Jesus himself later in his ministry would declare in John 6, 51, I am the living bread which came down from heaven. So the living bread of God, my friends, came down that night to the house of bread and was wrapped in swaddling cloth and was laid in a feeding trough. The living bread of life that would nourish men both physically and more importantly, spiritually. His appearing to the shepherds is also an extraordinary miracle because for one, shepherds were of the lowest type. 
And what I mean is that people frowned on them. They looked down on them. Because to be a shepherd, it meant that you were perpetually, ceremonially unclean. Because you were constantly dealing with animals and death and birthing. And because you were continually in the field with them. You lived with them. The ability to become ceremonially clean for any given occasion was not there most of the time. Thus, they were counted kind of outcast of society. But there were some shepherds that, though they had the traits of a shepherd and the reputation of a shepherd, had a very different job. And that's the shepherds we're dealing with in our text. These are shepherds of a different type. These shepherds were no ordinary shepherds. These shepherds were Levitical shepherds who had the task of raising the lambs for the temple sacrifices, which occurred daily. The reason is significant is because in verse 9, Luke goes on and says, And lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were sore afraid. And the angel said unto them, Fear not. Behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And this shall be a sign unto you. You shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. Now, though the text doesn't say it, I personally believe that the angel spoken of here is once again Gabriel. The reason I believe that is because Gabriel was the one who spoke about the coming of the Messiah, if you remember when we read the prophecy in Daniel. He was the one who told Mary that she would give birth to the Messiah. And so I think that Gabriel probably saw it through, if you can get that. And here he declared the good news, the tidings of great joy to these lowly Levitical shepherds who were abiding there in a field, watching over the temple flock by night. So they declared unto them, for unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And this shall be a sign unto you. You shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. What sign was he talking about? Every time I've taught through this, I always ask that question, and people have always said, well, the star, of course. Hate to break it to you. Wouldn't have been the star of Bethlehem. That would occur almost two years later. No, that was the Magi, remember? They followed the star, not the shepherds. They said, this shall be a sign in you. What sign were they talking about? Well, it was twofold. First, he said the babe would be wrapped in swaddling cloth. 
And secondly, they said he would be lying in a manger, in a feeding trough. The reason that this sign would be significant to these particular shepherds was because these Levitical shepherds were assigned the arduous task of maintaining the temple sheep to be in perfect condition because the law of Moses declared that the offering had to be without spot and without blemish. Thus the Levitical shepherds, when their lambs were born, they would wrap them in swaddling cloth, even a lamb because they had to protect them. They would take care of them until the sacrifice of the lambs to ensure that they were absolutely perfect. You remember when Jesus went to the temple and he found them there, the money changers were doing things that were unscrupulous. And one of the things that they used to do was because they had their own flocks, the temple did. The priest had their own sheep. People would bring a, a, a lamb that they believed was without spot or blemish to be. And of course, who inspected that lamb? Well, it would be the priest. And often they would look at the lamb that you brought and they would say, well, sorry, it's got a slight blemish. If you do move the, move the fur back, you'll see this little spot. Not worry. We have one that we have certified that's been raised by Levitical shepherds. And for a small nominal fee, well, you can, of course, have that for the sacrifice. So they had their own flocks. The Levitical shepherds raised these lambs, and so they, they, they took care of them. And as they were born, they would wrap them in swaddling cloth. It, it was a sign. They understood what was meant when the angel said that. Another miracle happened in verse 13, and it says, And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth. Peace, goodwill toward men. I think it's significant that all of these events were taking place in the middle of the night. Now I know geographically it was only at this particular spot at this particular time that night had fallen. But spiritually speaking since the fall of mankind in the beginning of the world the earth itself had been thrust into darkness and sin. So it's significant that the living bread of life would come into this world as the light of the world to show those who are living in darkness the way to salvation, which is through him. But suddenly, it says, this multitude of angels began praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace, goodwill toward men. Many people read that verse and they scoff because they say the scripture says peace on earth and yet there is no peace. 
And we look around and we see the truth of this. There's no peace in the world, not today, not in a physical sense. This night, however, was the night of promises kept. You see in Isaiah 9, verse 6, it says, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. So in a very real sense, my friends, peace came to the earth that night when God left heaven and took upon himself the form of a man and became the bread of light, the bread of life and the light of the world and the prince of peace to show that his will toward men was good. In verse 16, 15 and 16 in Luke there, he says, And it came to pass, as the angels were gone away from them in he- into heaven, the shepherds said one to another, Let us now go unto Bethlehem and see this thing which has come to pass, which the Lord hath made known unto us. And they came with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in a manger. Now, Did you ever ask yourself, because I have, how did they know where to find Mary and Joseph? The angels didn't tell them. They said this will be a sign and gave them two things. He would be wrapped in swaddling cloth and he would be lying in a manger, but they didn't say, go down to block 23 and make a left and he doesn't say that but they made haste and they went and they found them how remember this was the census and the taxing and everyone who had the lineage of David had to go back to the city of David the place would have been hoarded with people it would have been bursting at the seams thus there was no room for them in the inn The shepherds didn't walk down each street. They weren't looking behind every nook and cranny searching for them. It says they went with haste and they found them. No, the shepherds knew right where to find them because the angels had given them a sign. You see, there's only two places in Bethlehem that the Levitical shepherds used to birth their lambs. And that's two caves that are there to this day. As the ewes would become full term, these Levitical shepherds would take these ewe lambs that were ready to be delivered into these caves. And there they would wait for them to be delivered. And as they brought forth the lambs, they would then swaddle them in their clothes, and there they would take care of them until the lambs were 
ready for their own sacrifice. But there was only one place to do that, and that was where it went. That's why they knew, you see. They went right to them. They didn't have to travel up and down the streets. They knew where it was at because the sign was he will be wrapped in swaddling clothes and he will be lying in a feeding trough. The priest knew right where to go. So after the shepherds had found them, we're told in verse 17, and when they had seen it, they made known abroad the saying which was told them concerning this child. And all they that heard it wondered at those things which were told them by the shepherds. But Mary kept all these things and pondered them in her heart. And the shepherds returned glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had heard and seen as it was told unto them. And when eight days were accomplished for the circumcising of the child, his name was called Jesus which was so named of the angel before he was conceived in the womb. So we have the fulfillment of the prophecies concerning the Messiah on the night that Christ was born. The miracles that surrounded his birth, the shepherds, the heavenly angels, praising God and declaring what he had done. And all this while the world slept. Then, when eight days were accomplished, he was circumcised under the law that he might redeem them who were under the law and in the bondage of sin. Thus, in his name shall be called Jesus. Jehovah is our salvation. The greatest gift that was ever given was given to mankind that night. That first Christmas. Let's pray. Father, we love you so much. And Lord, as we prepare to celebrate and to remind ourselves of all that you have done and accomplished on our behalf, Lord, Father, and all that it took. We pray, Lord Father, that we would not get caught up in the trappings of the holiday, that we would be so busy about the things that are about you that we wouldn't take time to worship you and to thank you. Lord, we pray for those who, like the end of that time in those days, that didn't have any room for you. I pray for those, Lord Father, this season who hear this sermon. Maybe in their heart, Lord Father, they realize that they have never made room for you. They've made time for everything else, but their life is miserable because they've been at war with you. And Lord Father, your word tells us that Jesus, the Prince of Peace, came and reconciled to make peace between man and you. Lord, I pray that you would open their eyes 
who are in desperate need, Lord Father, of your salvation and the peace that only Christ can bring, that peace that surpasses understanding, that you would touch them, that you would draw them to yourself, that this Christmas would be different for them than any other, Lord Father, because then they would experience the true gift of salvation, which is only found in your Son, Christ Jesus, our Lord. And it's in his name we pray.